No, that's not Rocky. That's the Solomon Islands Police Band rocking out to Eye of the Tiger at an annual police commemoration ceremony. And maybe it's appropriate that they used a movie theme because police are among the most cinematic manifestations of statecraft in the region. Australia will now be approaching the quarter century mark in terms of support in Timor-Leste, and this year marks the 20th anniversary of the police-led regional assistance mission to Solomon Islands. That was when Australian, New Zealand and Pacific police arrived in Solomon Islands to restore order following several years of low-level conflict in the country that had several causes, ethnicity, tussles over resources and political power, and which resulted in the police splitting into factions and all the guns in the armory being looted. The Ramsey mission was on a per capita basis one of the most expensive operations in the world. It ended in 2017, but Australian police trainers remain, and in 2021, armed Australian police returned as part of another new assistance force following riots in Solomon Islands capital, Honiara. Our purpose here is to provide stability and security. And a few weeks after the Australians, so too did trainers from China. Policing has become even more a major principal plotline in the great game between the powers in the region. The Americans are coming too. We're launching our Pacific Partnership Strategy, which uh, is a key component to our broader Indo-Pacific strategy. Welcome to State Craftiness, the podcast that examines what happens in the months and years after diplomatic announcements are made. In the first episode, we discovered that the technical and diplomatic phrasings of statecraft and international politics obscures that this is in many ways a human story. In the second, we examined one of the most staple features of statecraft in the region, police reform. Just what influence does all this investment secure? Will we ever reach peak police reform? Will we ever reach the point where we say enough is enough? And also ask the question about who is driving this reform and who is benefiting from it. It's these questions that we're going to look at in this episode of State Craftiness. This is probably the one tool of statecraft that I have the most personal experience of. For three years, I worked for an Australian police program in Timor-Leste. And for a few years after that, used to get on planes where I conduct assessments and reviews for Australian and New Zealand police programs all over the Pacific. You can find some of my work in the most far off reaches of the internet. I enjoyed the experiences immensely. The bureaucratic politics that would be going on behind the scenes gave me lots of material for a mystery novel I'm trying to write at present. 
but there were many times I wondered whether all the painstakingly put-together words I was producing were having much effect or whether there were higher logics unbeknown to me at play. Many of the men and women I worked with on these programs are my lifelong friends. I got to understand the bonds that exist within police officers more acutely than anything I could have read. But many of these people are suffering from mental health challenges, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression induced by what one friend you'll hear from later in the podcast called moral injury, the challenges that are bound up being the street-level bureaucrats of statecraft, and the inscribed pain that comes from reporting that everything is going okay when it most manifestly is not. So I would like to introduce myself. So I'm Paula. I'm helping a... We begin this episode in Delhi by asking our reporter Paula Torres to do the equivalent of a police door knock and go and ask the denizens of Agora working on statecraft what the term police reform means to them. So what is police reform and what are we trying to change? Um, my understanding is that police reform is trying to understand the causes of crimes and trying to change that it's um, uh, supporting those people that commit the crime and changing how we enforce laws. Police reform in general for me is when we try to keep the police forces acting in a way that it's in line with the community demands and community needs. So I think that reform should happen regularly. Um, I'm from the United States where there is a big movement for police reform. In the U.S., the police have become sort of militarized and in many cases not really part of the community. It has a lot to do with trying to create more cultural and socially inclusive policies and laws, especially in Australia regarding Indigenous Australians or in America, the Black Lives Matters protests. In order to function, the public needs to trust them. And sometimes you need to make changes to make sure that the public trust remains high in the police so they can do their job. Sorry, I don't know about police reform in this country, um, but I would guess that you are trying to be more effective at um, keeping the, the crime at low and making the traffic run more smoothly. Paula's interview shed light on what was happening at the ground level of statecraft. Many people had a vague sense about what police reform represented, but weren't privy to its specific manifestation and what all the effort was actually trying to accomplish. I wanted to find out more about the specifics, and so I got in touch with an old compadre on some of my early police reform assignments. My name is uh, Sinclair Dinan. One sort of big area of my research has been on policing and justice reform, particularly in the countries of the Southwest Pacific. And I have been encountering and engaging in processes of reform in those areas now for approximately 30 years. Sinclair began his research in Port Moresby in the early 1990s. It's striking that if you read the words he wrote in his doctoral thesis, what an almost identical set of words could be used to describe the country today. Words like growing levels of lawlessness and social disorder, state institutions having demonstrably failed to control burgeoning problems, 
and in many respects, shown to have had counterproductive outcomes. There have been seven distinct policing programs in the years since. And I asked Sinclair if we were ever going to reach the finishing line, get to the point where we say, we've done enough reform, everyone's been reformed enough, we can now pack up and go home. Uh, the answer, the short answer to that is probably no, because I think, you know, there's a variety of reasons or, or rationales underlying the kind of engagement around policing. And while some of those are obviously about directly trying to improve the effectiveness of local police, a lot of them are, are broader sort of reasons to do with foreign policy, to do with the exercise of soft power and so on. And those kind of larger sort of reasons are, are probably not going to disappear anytime soon. I mean, I, I guess one of the striking features of policing and police reform is just what a prominent kind of visual motif it presents. Australian police on the beat in Solomon Islands, Chinese police training in Solomon Islands. It's one of the most sort of visual representations of statecraft. What do states such as Australia, the United States, China want to achieve with this police and defense support in the Pacific? What are they aiming for with this support? Is it to curry favor with the elite? Is it to improve policing outcomes? Is it because it's the most tangible symbol or kind of picture that you can send to indicate that we're doing something? What do states want to achieve with this? Why is it such a prominent feature in the iconography of statecraft? Well, in terms of the possible reasons that you listed there, the answer would probably be probably a bit of all of them. I think there are sort of multiple reasons or, or motivations for engaging in, in police reform internationally. You know, we, we see in this region often that those engagements are around something called capacity building. And that's premised on the assumption or the assessment that local police forces are not particularly well equipped for whatever reason to carry out their constitutionally mandated role very effectively and that they require the inputs uh, in the form of training from you know, better equipped police forces that have been doing this kind of work for much longer and they can pass on some of their knowledge and wisdom to the local police force. I think what we see is the significance of strategic reasons for engaging with foreign police. I mean, we see in this particular region increasing geostrategic competition around China's uh, increasing presence and influence. And that has served as a catalyst for a number of other countries who are concerned about the implications of that uh, development to engage much more actively across a number of fronts. And one of those fronts is policing. And again, that's related to the significance of policing, to notions of statehood. It's really very, very significant. So that in a place like the Solomon Islands, we've seen recently great concern, debate and activity around China's engagement with the Solomon Islands police force. And that's generated enormous amounts of 
column space in, in blogs and discussions and commentaries, particularly in places like Australia and New Zealand, where these countries have been involved in policing assistance in the region, including in Solomon Islands for many, many years, and are now greatly concerned that China might be sort of muscling in on their sphere of influence. Graham Smith is from ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs. He's one of Australia's leading watchers of China in the Pacific. According to him, such concern is overwarranted or perhaps misplaced. If you look at the amount of money that Australia spent on the policing in the Solomon Islands, I mean, really, it should be the, the finest police force on the planet <laughs> if training actually turns you into a good policeman. Um, I mean, it's what upwards of $2 billion now. Um, and if China wants to throw some money after that, then, you know, more for them. But it in itself is not something to be concerned about. I mean, China has been doing training exercises with police in Fiji um, since 2014. Fairly innocuous stuff. I mean, traffic cops, you know, this sort of exchange of knowledge is actually quite useful because parts of China are facing in many ways similar problems um, that the Solomon Islands faces in terms of, you know, trying to build new systems and regulate a, a population that doesn't really want to be governed. So, so there are commonalities there that, that Australia doesn't really share with the Solomon Islands. I mean, where the concern comes in is with the intersection of Chinese commercial interests with the, shall we say, the state of Solomon Islands politics um, and where you have MPs with very serious financial demands placed on them by their extended networks and people acting as intermediaries to meet those financial needs. And this has been going on long before any policing agreement was signed. But if you really want to dig into what's rotten in the state of Denmark, it is these ATMs who are providing money to Solomon Islands politicians on a daily basis, and they are China-linked. But that has been the case for, for some time. There are approximately 1,150 members of the Royal Solomon Islands Police. And in deployments over the last 20 years, close to an equal number of Australian, New Zealand and Pacific Police that have been involved in training and supporting them. That's approximately $1.7 million per Solomon Islands police officer. Type the word training into the website of the Solomon Islands Police and one finds 310 entries, and that's from the year 2018 to this one. Four relate to media training. We were keen to find out how much of all the support that's been given over the years had stuck, how much influence it had wrought. But despite all the media training they've been given, actually getting to talk to a member of the Solomon Islands Police was a challenge. Even our person on the ground, the experienced journalist Dorothy Wickham, had to roll up the white flag of surrender. Dorothy spent weeks chasing present and former police officers, but to no avail. She had a couple of pretty strong leads, but even then, the trail went cold. It was, she surmised, part of a wider hushing when it comes to politics in present-day Solomon Islands. Sorry this has been so difficult for you. I wasn't expecting that it was going to be this challenging. I mean, a lot of people were very hesitant to express their views. And I think it's because it's, we're talking the police, you see. And I, I saw that a lot of people are getting more and more hesitant to say exactly what they're thinking, what they're feeling. I'm hoping we don't really go down that road because, you know, we've always been free to express our views. 
now it's a different bull game altogether now. So a lot of accusations that there was that was the Chinese influence on how the government sees and treats the media. But I, I think this is a trend right around the Pacific, to be honest with you. Well, right now, everything has been handled through press releases and a few press conferences. But as you know, Chinese have their set pattern. And ever since they've arrived in this country, they don't say much in the media. And when they do, it's side by side with the Prime Minister or the Foreign Affairs Minister. The Australians have been pumping out a lot of press releases, but no press conferences. That's always been the Australian style, too. When Dorothy and I spoke late last year, it had been a busy week of strategic one-upmanship and Christmas is coming early for the Royal Solomon Islands Police. One day, Australia handed over vehicles and weapons, but not before some commendatory words were exchanged. Australia has always, has always been an unwavering friend and a partner, which uh, has never faltered. It is with great pleasure and gratitude that we accept this support as a token of your goodwill and support to Solomon Islands. And here is a senior Australian police officer who's introduced as Commander Rapp. Prime Minister and Commissioner, you should be very proud of how they represented your country and your force. And then a few days later, it was back to the parade ground for more equipment from China. On behalf of the government of People's Republic of China, I would like to announce that today is my great honor and privilege to hand over officially the 20 off-road vehicles, 30 motorcycles, and two multi-purpose water cannon vehicles to the Royal Solomon Islands Police Forces. I asked Dorothy if all these handovers were actually likely to buy much influence. I think one point that I've I've tried to remind Solomon Islanders too, now that discussion is open on this, is that these weapons were requested by our government. And of course, if Australia didn't want to hand it over, of course they would have gone to the Chinese. And then I'm pretty sure that's why Australia handed it over, to ensure that it was coming from there and not from the Chinese. So the psyche behind it, why the government is thinking they need to arm their police to the teeth, is very puzzling. If ever these weapons were used, I've been reflecting on this. Australia will get blamed for this. You know how Solomon Islanders don't really understand how diplomatic relations work and how the donor system works. Now, if those guns were used to shoot a young Solomon Islander and somebody dies as a result of a riot or a problem that happens here and the guns are used, then Australia will be blamed by ordinary Solomon Islanders for handing over the guns. I mean, Honeyara must feel, you know, like Checkpoint Charlie from the Cold War. You know, you've got all this great power competition that is happening there. You've got the Americans are flying in. You've got senior Australian diplomats and ministers are arriving in. You've got Chinese foreign minister is there. At a day-to-day level, you've also got a large number of Australian police officers and Chinese police officers in Honeyara. Does the average Solomon Islander see these individuals? Are they out patrolling with the police? What, what, are the, what are these guys doing on an everyday basis? If you look at the contact on the ground, I think the Regional Assistance Mission did a better job because they did a lot of community policing. They were out there in the communities, in the schools, working with youth groups, in uh, trying to reach out people to people and not so much just sitting in the office. 
But the current situation we have and now since Ramsey has closed down is that the Australian police have moved into more mentoring and training in the middle management level of police. So they're hardly seen out and about in the ordinary Solomon Islanders environment. They're mixing more amongst themselves and within the police force, not so much out in the communities. While the Chinese, there's not very many of them in town, but a lot of their traveling into the provinces have had a lot to do with PR too. You know, they're reaching out and trying to make themselves familiar. But the Australian police and the Chinese police must be bored out of their minds. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if they are, you know, because this is a very small town. There's nothing much you can really do here unless you have real personal close relationships with people. Then you can actually have more interaction on the ground. But if they're kept isolated the way they are now, they would be really bored. I mean, you see them in the cafes here and you see them, they go down to the beaches and they, you know, I mean, what is to do, you know, if, if they're just going to sit at the police headquarters here and, and try and meet what is being set by Canberra or what is being set by Beijing or what is being set by, by our Prime Minister's office. You see it here in the cafes here. A lot of them, you know, go down there for coffee and for lunch and it must be really boring. had the view that we'll be doing training forever and a day and, and someone will land on the moon and they'll find a Pacific police force up there doing training. But in fairness to them, police training never, ever stops. Doesn't matter whether you're in Australia, doesn't matter where you are, it never, ever stops because there's refresher training. It's all to do with modernisation to a degree, uh, law, the technical skills that people have to have. So from my point of view, I doubt we'll ever, ever finish our training. That's Dennis McDermott, a man with a lifetime of policing under his belt and more than 20 years' experience policing the Pacific. He was Deputy Police Commissioner during the United Nations Mission East Timor in the early 2000s and from 2007 to 9 was Police Commissioner in Solomon Islands, coming into the post a year after a set of riots burnt large parts of Chinatown in Honiara to the ground. Among Dennis's responsibilities was bolstering the public order capability of the Solomon Islands Police to ensure that such an incident didn't happen again. Yet 13 years later, the exact same thing did happen again. I asked Dennis whether this set of deja vu all over again proved the futility of all this training and equipping against eruptions that are essentially political or social in nature. Well, I know in 2008, 2009, we developed a very constructive capability for public order management. I went back in 2011 and I saw a demonstration that was done by the group and it was really impressive. You know, they'd maintained their skills. There'd been uh, some added protection equipment to them, which, which is going to happen because of changes. But like you, I'm a bit confused as to why they would need a whole new adventure. Not, I don't call it a venture, I call it an adventure. Because at the end of the day, all they need to do is, is recertification on the skills every 12 months. So I'm a bit confused about that and, uh, and I, I don't think it is a good look. It's like saying that Australia and New Zealand have not applied the right techniques. Well, that's not quite right. doesn't mean to say we have it right, but we've always been a learning environment and, uh, and I think we have some of the best and so do the Kiwis. So it's a bit confusing, I have to say, but I, I should hope, even though they've been, uh, there's been a replacement of equipment by the Chinese, 
they should have the capability. And I have to say that I was very surprised in the riots of December 21 that they hadn't responded from what I've read and been told as well as they should have. They should have had the ability to do that. I certainly did when, uh, when I left and when I saw what I saw in 2011. Maybe one of the central problems is that Australia, China and everyone else is presenting police reform as something technical, a problem that is capable or susceptible to be resolved through addressing technical deficiencies. I saw this play out in Timor-Leste in 2006 too, where, like in Solomon Islands, the police fractured quickly into feuding sides, revealing themselves to be little more than just a set of uniforms and guns. It struck me that the problems were more susceptible to be resolved through counselling sessions than training sessions. The internal problems within the police in Timor-Leste related to problems over resources, who was getting promoted, which person was getting favoured over another, who was getting to go on a foreign trip. They simply weren't susceptible to technical fixes, more training and more plans. And getting at these sort of root causes is hard. It's not something that an outside power is particularly well suited to assisting. Thinking about Solomon Islands, Dennis reflected on his efforts to get a Truth and Reconciliation Commission up and running during his tenure and how difficult that was. In uh, May, June 2009, the Australian government kindly provided $40 million additional money for administrative funds. And a part of those administrative funds, 5 million of it was for reconciliation. And to this date, whilst the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was implemented uh, in April 2009 by the then Prime Minister with the assistance of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who visited the Solomon Islands, they, they did do some reconciliation, but it wasn't wide enough. And has it never really just, it just never got off the ground or it petered out or you got the money, but nobody was interested in it? What, what happened? I think it became too hard. And it would have been meetings with politicians, heads of church, certainly chiefs in, uh, in, in the particular places. And uh, for, for me, it would have been something it would have taken probably six months to do but uh, never got off the ground. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was very, very active, did have a meeting at Lawson Tama, their main oval, but that's as far as it went. Dennis was front of stage, but what of the people back of stage? All those police officers in the coffee shops with seemingly nothing to do. I was one of those people once. As a reviewer of my first book on Timor-Leste commented, you get the impression that my day job was ineffectual, but it gave me plenty of time to play detective and write the book that I did. This reviewer had me pegged right. At an everyday level, there is so much hanging around, so much pressure to say one is doing good work, and also no small amount of loneliness and frustration too. <laughs> My name is Kane, and I'm an ex-police officer. Kane Johnson is a former Australian Federal Police and Queensland police officer, a man brought up during his teenage years in Bougainville. We worked together in Dilly and have kept in touch ever since. As well as Timor-Leste, Kane served also in Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands. His story is one of tropical islands, a government far away, the everyday challenges of working with other cultures and the toll that comes with speaking inconvenient truths. 
Kane speaks frankly about his experiences, and I'd like to warn our listeners that this section deals with issues relating to post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. August 2011 to October 2012, so that's sort of 10 years on from the initial Ramsey intervention. Uh, so I, I, I performed two roles over there, capacity development, mentoring of Royal Solomon Island Police. So my first job was on the island of Makira, which is south of uh, Guadalcanal, nearly two-hour helicopter flight to get down there. So my role there was to assist, mentor, develop the district superintendent for Makira, uh, the RSIPF superintendent. Um, And so I was down there with myself and another member, one of the Pacific Island contingent members. So at first, a nice guy from Micronesia. And the second guy was uh, from Tonga. They were good guys. But my, my, my job was basically that, to assist the superintendent, you know, with day-to-day policing matters and, you know, management of a police station or a police district. So I arrived there and, of course, on my first day at work, went down, introduced myself to the superintendent, and um, it was immediately clear to me that he certainly was not interested in me being there at all. He essentially dismissed me, basically wouldn't engage with me at all. So I went, okay, and then uh, I went and saw the sergeant, uh, who's the team leader of the criminal investigation area, and I got the same from him. So it was very obvious to me from the outset that uh, they weren't interested in me being there and they wouldn't engage with me at all. So from that point forward, I just wandered down there each day and try and engage, but it was zero interest. So what did I do with my days? Um, Basically go down to the station each day, see who was around, see what I could help with. That would be nothing. I did manage to get my hands on some of the outstanding. They had about 900 outstanding criminal investigation matters uh, that needed investigating. (laughs) But I thought what I'd do to help out and really for my own boredom, I guess, see if I could just clear a few of them, and write them off as in this is not going to go anywhere, so let's let's get rid of it. Pretty hard to stay motivated in that, that sort of circumstance. Uh, yeah, extremely. The Pacific Island guys that I was there with, the two guys, albeit they were lovely, lovely guys, but, I mean, they were, they were closer in, in culture and, you know, mindset to the Solomon Islanders than they were to me. And, indeed, both of them used to just go, I don't even know where they went. They just used to hang out with the locals. I don't know where. They just disappear all day and then come back at night for dinner, you know. Um, I don't know what they're doing. And then you, and then you, you've got, then you've got this kind of challenge, which is like you're down at the kind of micro level, the street level cop, and then at the wider level, you've got this sort of political game going on, where Australia is sort of supporting the Solomon Islands in in partnership. As you said, it's been ten years now since Ramsey. The Solomon Islands police have probably received more training than you have as a police officer. Was it hard yeah. to kind of describe up the the challenges that you were having, the sort of everyday resistance that you were facing? Maybe how just how lonely you felt, because I would be feeling lonely if I was down in that island for three months. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I was. <laughs> I was very lonely. Reporting back up, I mean, the mechanisms were there, but it was just the expectation was nonsense. So that was what I spent the rest of my time doing was filing nonsense reports about what I wasn't doing. One time I genuinely did need some assistance down there. Two villagers were fighting over who owned, it was a, 
was a patch of land in a Malaysian or Chinese company had the lease on to log. So they were fighting over who owned the land actually because obviously then they were getting the lease money and maybe royalties or whatnot. So they were pretty much getting ready to go to war. So we're talking, you know, potentially a lot of people dying or getting injured, you know, and, and villages being burnt and this sort of thing. So so I was documenting all this in my, my daily reports and my weekly summary and whatnot. You know, incidentally, that was one of two times that the RSIPF actually came to me for help, partly because they didn't want to deal with it because obviously they're locals themselves and then there's retribution and partly because they didn't really know how to sort of manage it. The one time I actually asked for help, I I contacted Honiara via email and said, look, this is going to kick off. You need to send some people down here so we can hopefully manage it and hopefully prevent it from occurring, you know. And all I got back was, uh, no, we're not sending anyone and just deal with it as best you can, basically. So, <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah, 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 awesome. So, um, and also incidentally, the, this is one of the incidents that has contributed to my PTSD and depression because we went out there. It was pretty hairy. It was very, very hairy, in fact. And I'm sort of standing there on my own, literally between two villages about to go to war with each other and trying to stop them from doing that. And, and not not lose my life at the same time, you know, which I managed to do somehow, I don't, you know, these days. So, yeah, uh, you, you kind of put things out of, your, out of your mind, you know. I asked Kane why it was so hard for him to get bad news up the chain. Well, I, I think they have a culture of reporting roses, right? So no one wants to be the bearer of bad news because um, they have a history of, making life difficult for people who aren't towing the party line, so to speak. You know? So they've got that culture, and that just permeates everything they do. From Honiara, you know, that culture is, is the same as it is in Australia. It's, it's reporting roses. So, you know, everyone's reporting up to a commander ultimately who then reports to Australia that, no, everything's, everything's hunky-dory, nothing to see here. We're getting good value for money, the funding that the AFP has had, because that's what it all hinges on and ultimately, you know, value for money, you're getting bang for your buck. So, of course, everyone reports roses except for probably the troops on the ground, i.e. me, and then that just gets ignored because, well, that's bad news. We don't want bad news. We want good news. A few years ago, Kim was among the first of my colleagues to open up to me about his depression and his post-traumatic stress disorder. I admire how candidly and openly he speaks about the issue now. And I asked him how many of our former colleagues were faring. Uh, a lot of them are broken. A lot of them have PTSD, depression, anxiety, alcohol use disorder. You know, yeah, a lot. <laughs> it's a really high number. So myself included. Um, so off the top of my head, I know... 10 people directly uh, that have all gone through, I don't know, 11, 12. Oh, it's got to be It's got to be near 20 have I really sat down and, and went through who I've worked with in the past, you know, um, and that's who I know personally. So there's a lot more than that. And certainly my, my psychiatrist, he has over 100 on his books. After talking with Sinclair, Dennis, Dorothy and Kane, the question remains very much under investigation as to whether all this effort in Solomon Islands has been worth it. The toll is not just financial. 
Thanks to Kane, we are reminded about the lasting impact of these engagements and the very human casualties that come with the power politics of statecraft. In the next episode, we'll consider the cables and connections that we're using to create this podcast, communications infrastructure, how it intersects with statecraft, and why this is such a contested and contentious geopolitical space. I'm your host, Gordon Peake. Mark Peter Nataras and Shana Ryan at Cultural Pulse produce the podcast. Joanne Wallace at University of Adelaide is the executive producer. Luther Canute is the sound engineer and producer. This activity was supported by the Australian government through a grant by the Australian Department of Defence to the University of Adelaide. The views expressed are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Australian government, the Australian Department of Defence or the University of Adelaide.